having considered the oneness of God and the Trinity and some of the details regarding what we call the, the persons or the subsistences within the Godhead, the next logical step before we get to the what we typically refer to as the attributes of God, the next logical step is to vindicate the claim or claims that the, the Son or Word of God and the Spirit of God are in fact God. We, we have assumed that and especially last Lord's Day we assumed all of that and hopefully those things have been made clear but now the, the, in the book we move on to defend those statements and the title of this chapter is The Deity of the Son and Spirit. Now, just sort of returning back to what we've covered already with regard to the unity or the oneness of God and with regard to the Trinity, we, I want to be very clear here, and we as Christians need to be very clear, that we're not merely arguing for the, the deity of the Son and Spirit as if they um, are also simply divine in some sense. What, what the Christian uh, believes, what the Bible teaches, is that the Son and the Spirit are the God of the Bible, not merely raised to the level of divine or deified in some sense, but when the Bible talks about God, the one God, we also affirm that the Son and the Spirit are that one God. It might help to think in terms of lowercase d and capital D. We're not talking about lowercase d deity uh, having divine qualities. Many many religions of the world will ascribe deity in that sense to many different beings and some of them even to uh, the, the man Jesus. They'll say, of course, he was born a man and he was raised to the level of lowercase d deity. We're not arguing that. We're, we're arguing capital D deity. The, the Son and the Spirit are the singular deity because there's only one God, one deity. So then, reading from the, the workbook, he says, The word deity comes from the Latin word deitas, which denotes divinity or the state of being God. Now, of course, you can even see in, in that statement there that the word G is capitalized, the state of being God, the one God. We're, we're assuming and reading this from a Christian perspective. The deity of the Son and the Spirit are two of the most important doctrines in Christianity. A person simply cannot be a Christian without, <clears throat> without recognizing that the Son and the Spirit are God, the second and third persons of the Trinity. The Son, who became flesh for our salvation, and the Spirit, who indwells every believer. And to be clear, as just to, to reaffirm what he's saying, we do see this as one of those non-negotiable objective truths of the Christian faith. A person simply cannot be a Christian without recognizing that the Son and the Spirit are God. Now somebody might hear that and say, ask, why is that the case? Is that not sort of an extreme position? Are we not talking about doctrines that are really incomprehensible, 
indescribable, mysterious, um, technical in the language as we've seen. Some of us are even still learning. I'm still learning how to say these things and think of these things properly. Is it not pretty extreme to say that if somebody doesn't affirm all this, they're not a Christian? Doesn't that seem to, to, to push too far? Well, the reason that we have to say that, the reason that this is the case, is because of what we've already seen about God. Just as essentially God is one, it is equally as essential that He subsists as Father, Son, and Spirit. It's who He is. To deny the deity of the Son or to deny the deity of the Spirit is to deny the deity, the God. Now what does that assume then? Well, it assumes that a person is going to eventually be worshiping a God who's not the God of the Bible. If you worship a God who is merely Father and you say, well, I don't believe in the deity of the Son, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. That's a dangerous place to be. Uh, another danger would be you're, you would be found withholding worship from the one who ought to be worshipped. And this is another great thing that we have to guard against. If we are not rendering worship to the Son, we're, 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 we are withholding worship from one who deserves our worship. If we are not ascribing and rendering worship to the Holy Spirit, we're withholding worship from one who should have our worship. That's a dangerous place to be. It's, it's, it's very serious. Now, does, does all of that mean that you have to be well-versed in Trinitarian dogmatics to be, be considered a Christian? Is there a test you know, before we can affirm your salvation where you have to define subsistence or you have to define perichoresis? And, no, we're not saying that. We're, 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 we actually, I think we all understand that we were born again, converted, brought to faith prior to really being able to lay hold of, articulate, uh, verbalize, understand many of these things, what we're saying is that a true believer will receive this doctrine and affirm it as they see it set forth in the Scriptures. In other words, you, if you, you, you take a person to the Scriptures who professes to be a Christian, you begin to teach these things. A believer, a true Christian, it, it doesn't have the liberty of saying, well, I just don't agree with, with the, the Son and the Spirit being God. Well, then you'd, say, you'd have to say, well, if, if you've seen it and you reject it, well, then you're outside of the bounds of Christianity. You're, you're, you're either, either not regenerate or you're, you're still not really comprehending what's being said. You need to be uh, brought along further. But for somebody to reject the deity of the Son or the deity of the Spirit, that puts them outside the bounds of, of Christian theology. He says, It's absolutely essential that every true follower of Christ learn from the Scriptures that both the Son and the Spirit are fully divine in the strictest sense of the term. Well, what is the strictest sense of the term? Well, that's the restriction of Christian monotheism. That's the strictest sense. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. In the strictest sense of Christian monotheism, there's only one God. Therefore, the Son is that God. The Spirit is that God. They are each the one only living and true God. So that's all of that by way of introduction. Now, we're going to begin by considering the full true divinity or deity of the Son. 
We'll talk about the Holy Spirit next Lord's Day. I've divided this up into uh, two sections. The doctrine stated, just clearly set forth, and then I'm going to do a a second uh, section entitled The Doctrine Defended. So here we have the doctrine stated. We'll begin there. And I uh, I do want to do what I did last week, and that is read from our confession of faith just so that you can hear that this is... This is not anything different than what we've ever uh, understood or believed. Our Confession of Faith, chapter 8, paragraph 2, says, The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things He hath made, and then later on it says, which person is very God. All of that ascribed to the Son. The Nicene Creed, speaking of the only Son of God, refers to Him as, quote, eternally begotten of the Father, God of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through Him all things were made. That's the more historic articulation of, of the doctrine of the deity, the full deity or divinity of the Son. Now, the question is, where do we find this in the Scriptures? And that, that takes us to our first text, which is John 1.1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. Verse 1. We'll do a little bit of turning John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, before we move on, there's a, a note there. I didn't, I didn't bring my book before me. There's a note there where he references... Uh, Greek philosophy, but, and then later he says, and I do have this quote, in the Old Testament, it referred to the communication or self-expression of God, speaking of that word logos. God created all things through the Word, Genesis 1, 3 and 9, he re- and He reveals Himself to men through the Word. Um, now, he does reference Greek philosophy. I, I tend to think, and, and this is all a part of my own study, learning, and thinking through this, and I've said, I've said differently in the past. Um, I tend to think John was speaking more from a scriptural background than a Greek philosophical background. Um, that, that just makes more sense to me. I think there are probably places in the New Testament where you can see Paul alluding to some of the, the philosophies that were known of his day. Here in the Gospel of John, it doesn't make much sense to say, well, John was thinking of Greek philosophy and, and those things. I think John was thinking biblically and scripturally as he writes. Um, the, the reference here to, to Genesis 1, 3, I'll read 1 to 3. You can just listen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, we, we know that's related to what John's saying. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Several weeks ago on, on a, a Saturday morning, I mentioned to the men how it's, it's interesting to just stop and, and think about what it means that God said we, we 
we imagine in our minds this darkness and then there was this booming voice, let there be. But God, God doesn't have vocal cords. It wasn't as, as if airwaves were rattling His vocal cords and, and audio came out. There, there's, this is an anthropomorphism. So then we would ask, what does it mean that God said? Well, His Word went forth. That's the picture here. His Word went forth and there was light. Now, explaining that later on in the Scripture, Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. What's the breath of the Lord? That's the Holy Spirit. Again, the, the, the Trinity there in the work of creation, Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord. Notice it doesn't say at the word of the Lord, as if a command went out and then there was a response. No, by the word of the Lord. The word was the action, the, the actor in creation. The word was the creator. Psalm 107.20, He sent out His word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Psalm 147.15, He sends out His command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. We see in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord has given these these personal attributes. He heals, He delivers, He runs. Now turn with me, another text is Isaiah 55. Turn there. Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11. We know in reading John's Gospel, John was familiar with Isaiah. Read Isaiah, referenced Isaiah, quoted Isaiah. So, so John knows this. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth... It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now in this verse, the Word is sent. The Word is sent with a purpose. There's an intention behind the sending of the Word. The Word is sent on a mission where there is, in in theory, potential success or failure, but we do see here that success is defined and guaranteed by God. Here's what success will be. Here's the intention. And it will happen. It shall do this. It shall accomplish. And interestingly, when we read that text, a lot of times we we just focus on it shall not return empty. It will accomplish something. But it doesn't say that the Word will not return It says the Word will not return empty or void. It won't return apart from success, which one could argue leaves the door open that the Word will go forth, accomplish its purpose, and then return. Anyway, I think think all of this and more is the biblical background for John when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Back back to John chapter 1. It's of this very Word 
that he says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Now, we've, we've talked about this before. You've heard this. That language of the Word dwelling, you know, is, is, is parallel with the Old Testament language of a tabernacle. The Word dwelling or the Word tabernacled among us. That was the image. John's using this Old Testament image of the Word coming down and dwelling in a tent, the dwelt among us. The, the, you know, elsewhere in Scripture, the, the human body is uh, described as a tent. Paul says, I'll put off this earthly tent, things like that. But that's the picture. The, the flesh, or the Word becomes flesh and tabernacles in that flesh as an earthly tent among us, the people of God. Now, you don't have to turn there, but listen to this. With all that in your mind, the Word coming and dwelling, tabernacling amongst the people of God, listen to this, Exodus 33, 7 through 11. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent... All the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door. So every, every individual man, they had their own tents, but then they would also stand and watch Moses go to this tent. They would watch until Moses had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend. Picture this. The pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the ESV reads, and the Lord would speak with Moses. But if, you have, uh, if your Bible uses italics, you know the, that phrase, the Lord, is actually added. It, it reads, the, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door, Thus, the Lord, that is Yahweh, used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Deuteronomy 34.10 says, There's not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Hopefully you can see the, the correlation. Moses would go to the man-made tabernacle to meet with God and hear from God. In Christ, God comes down to the spirit-made tent of human flesh and tabernacles among men that men might hear from God and someday know Him face to face just like Moses did. Perhaps, I would argue, better than Moses did. Again, I think all of that is the, the, the biblical background to what John's saying when he says the Word was God and then the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So that's John 1. Um, he references John 1.18 with many notes. You can see them there. I don't have the notes in front of me. Um, I will say this just about John 1.18 in general. Um, you can see there uh, Washer tips his hand with regard to the issues of textual criticism and translation, uh, the, the discussion is between uh, the only begotten Son or only begotten God. Some of you have Son, 
Some of you have God. Interestingly, and I think this is important, historically, men have quoted John 1.18. Using both, only begotten God, only begotten Son, one of those was used by some Arians to argue against the deity of the Son, which is very interesting. The reason I say all that is, is a singular text like this might not be the best place to, to build a case, number one. Um, but secondly, oftentimes we think that the texts that we think seal the deal are not, they don't stand on their own, which I think is important. Um, he also makes a reference to monogenes only, and then genes or genus uh, kind. That also is not, I've used that argument, I follow that argument. I don't think it's a good argument. There's no reason that, that the only uh, one or the only of the same kind, there's no reason to say that's a better translation. Uh, texts that translate that, that word monogenes, only begotten, in other places, just translate it only son or only daughter. It, it can go either way. And I think there is a theological reason to think in terms of only begotten. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm going to leave, leave all of that to your study. Um, other texts that he uses, again, the, the point is we're trying to see the doctrine just stated in its, in its clearest form. Philippians 2.6, speaking of the incarnate Christ, Paul says, He was in the form of God. Very clearly stated. And then there's a note. This is an unmistakable reference to the deity of Christ. He existed throughout all eternity, bearing the form of God and being equal with God in every way. Even when He emptied Himself and became a man, He did not cease to be God. He emptied Himself of the privileges of deity, but not of deity itself. Now, he did not cease to be God. True. He emptied himself of the privileges of deity. I don't know what that means. Um, there, I, I, I would want to hear more. But this is a good opportunity to bring up the tendency that we have to uh, drift towards what is called canoticism. Uh, taken from this passage in verse two of or verse seven of Philippians two, where it says he emptied himself or he made himself of no reputation. The word there, the Greek word is ekonose, comes over to us as kenosis, and kenosis is the the theological term for the the humiliation and incarnation of the Son. Kenosis. Now there are options, basically two options that we could take with regard to the doctrine of kenosis, what actually happened uh, when the Word uh, humbled Himself and was incarnate. The first one is, the Son emptied Himself of some of His divine attributes. Or, and other people have used the language of He, he set aside some of His divine attributes or, or maybe even uh, emptied Himself of some of the privileges of deity. I don't know that that's what He means or not. Um, but that kind of language we, 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 we've heard. We, we know that some people take that option. The second option is, under the doctrine of kenosis, is that the Son assumed the form of a servant 
which veiled the form of God according to His human nature. I think that might be a good way to say it. The Son assumed the form of a servant which veiled the form of God according to His human nature. And, and the, that second one is the, the more correct way to think and, and to say this. The eternal Son, eternal Word that we're talking about, never lost or gave up or set aside, handed over any divine attributes or ceased to be anything other than He eternally is. So that's why when, when you hear the privileges of deity, what, what does it mean? I, I don't know. Uh, but we do have to be careful in our thinking. The eternal Son never lost, gave up, handed over any divine attributes. He never ceased to be anything other than He eternally is. Uh, and the reason that I say the, he, took, he assumed the form of a servant which veiled the form of God according to His human nature, what I mean is if you were to look at the man Jesus of Nazareth as He walked the earth, you wouldn't see a halo or a glow around Him as if, as if the divinity was just kind of shining through. No, he, in, according to His human nature, He looked like a, a man just like any of us. He, he was a human, true, very man just like us. And yet, he never lost, gave up, or handed over any of his divine attributes. Positively speaking, we could say, in his humiliation and incarnation, the eternal word assumed the nature of a man, and according to that nature, he had the form of a servant, not the form of God. To explain this a little further, let me read to you from a, a work by Athanasius, who lived at the end of the third into the fourth century, on, the title of it is On the Incarnation. And, and Brandon sent this to me this week. Just some statements that he makes. He says, The Word was not hedged in by His body, nor did His presence in the body prevent His being present elsewhere as well. A lot of times we think that. We say, well, uh, you know, obviously omnipresence is an attribute that He gave up because there He was in a human body. He could only be in one place at one time. No, that's not true. He remained omnipresent according to His divine nature. When He moved His body, back to Athanasius, when He moved His body, He did not cease also to direct the universe by His mind and might. No. The marvelous truth is that being the Word so far from being himself constrained by anything, he actually contained all things in himself. Later on, existing in a human body to which he himself gives life, he is still the source of life to all the universe, present in every part of it, yet outside the whole. Another one, his body was for him not a limitation, but an instrument, so that he was both in it and in all things, and outside all things, resting in the Father alone. 
He didn't, nothing about the divine nature of the Son changed in the least in the incarnation. Why? Because God is immutable. The human nature of Christ is a creature, a created thing. The creature cannot have an effect on the immutable God. It doesn't work that way. But the immutable God does have an effect in acting, creating, sustaining, and uphold that human creature. And we need to keep this in mind when we speak of Christ in human flesh because we're speaking of a state in which He still exists. He is still in human flesh. And yet, being in human flesh, He still upholds all things by the word of His power. He's still in human flesh. He's still God the Son. None, none of that is changed because of the incarnation. You say, that baffles my mind. I say, then worship Him. Worship Him. Paul said in Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul doesn't say He was the image of the invisible. He says He is right now. Even Paul writing after the ascension, even in His exalted human nature, our nature at the right hand of God, even now He says He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then there are other texts that are listed that, that state this in simple terms. John 20, 28. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Titus 2, 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Romans 9, 5. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Hebrews 1.8, But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. So there's the doctrine stated. The Son of God is the God of the Bible. Now, Secondly, the doctrine defended. All, all of those plain statements like that, should, that they, they should satisfy us. I, I think most of us could stop right now. We're not, we're, we're not right, most of us are not embroiled in a controversy about the deity of the Son, and we wouldn't necessarily have to go much further than that. But in the past, other men have gone uh, further and gone about it in a different way to defend the doctrine of the deity of the Son by showing that the names, attributes, and actions of God are all attributed to the Son. And the worship that is rendered to God is also given to the Son. Um, if, you, if you pick up many old writers or systematic theologies of any sort, you're going you're to find that, they, that many of them went about this in this same process. It was sort of commonplace. And so what I want to do is walk through William Plumer's outline in, in how he handles this in a book called The Rock of Our Salvation. It's, it's basically a, a book on Christology, very simple. If you read it, you would say this is the perfect middle school level book on Christology. I'm, I'm reading it, I'm thinking this is so simple, it's so plain, the, the, the font is big um, in, in the copy that I have. It, it's, it's a good work, but this is how he does it. Hopefully this will be a blessing. You don't, we're going to look at nearly 40, or I'm going to read nearly 40 scriptures to you. You don't have to turn to them, but just listen. First, the names of God are given to Christ. 1 John 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus Christ is the true God. Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus Christ is God with us. Acts 10.36, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, and then in, in English, parenthetically, He is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is called Lord of all. 1 Corinthians 2.8, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would, have not, would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus Christ is named the Lord of glory. John 12, 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And John there is, is speaking of, of Jesus. In other words, if we were to ask, who is it that Isaiah saw according to John? It was the man, it was Jesus Christ. Okay, if we go back to Isaiah 6 and we ask, Isaiah, who do you say that you saw? Isaiah 6, 5, the King, the Lord of hosts. In other words, according to John, Jesus Christ is the King, the Lord of hosts. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There he calls Christ Lord, quoting from Joel 2, 32. We go back to Joel. Joel, who are you talking about when you say, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Joel says, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. In other words, according to Paul, Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Divine, the names of God are attributed to Jesus Christ. The next line of reasoning to defend the full deity of Christ is to show that divine attributes are ascribed to Him. Eternity. John 1.15, John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, Christ, according to John the Baptist, Jesus Christ was before him. John speaking, he was actually six months older than the man Jesus of Nazareth. He says, but he was before me. He's, he's outside of the bounds of time as we know it. John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus Christ was before Abraham. Revelation twenty two thirteen. he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, Jesus Christ is the fountain and the terminus of all things. Therefore, He must precede and stand outside of and beyond all things. He is eternal. The second attribute, omnipresence, is attributed to Christ. Matthew 18, 20, he says, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Christ is present wherever his people gather. Matthew 28, 20, he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is to say, Christ is present in all of his churches, wherever his people gather, at all times and in all places, until the very end. Therefore, He is omnipresent. There are, there are other churches meeting right now, you know. While we're meeting, they're meeting. He's here and He's there. 
He's omnipresent all over the world. Omniscience. Omniscience, that, that is to say, He knows everything. John 21, 17, He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Jesus Christ knows everything. John 2, 24 to 25, But Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. Jesus Christ knows what's in men, the hearts and the minds of men. He knows it all. Revelation 2.23, All the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. He has opened to His view every thought and every intention of every person. And someday, everyone will acknowledge that and confess that and realize it. This One has known every thought, every word, every intention. He's omniscient. Immutability is ascribed to Christ. The Son, Hebrews 1, 10 to 12, speaking of the Son, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years have no end. That's taken from Psalm 102. While, while everything changes, the creature, creation, by nature is changing. It's always becoming, never the same. Even from second to second, the creature is a second older, a second older, a second older, always changing. Not Christ. Eternally the same. He's immutable. Hebrews 13, 8, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is immutable. He cannot change. Omnipotence is ascribed to Him, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glory, glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Not only does He have the power to transform our bodies, Christ has the power to subject all things to Himself. He's omnipotent. Revelation 1.8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Christ is the Almighty, the Lord who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. John 5.19, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord. Aha, we got you. But only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does... That the Son does likewise. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Christ can do everything and does do everything that the Father does. Christ has the power to raise the dead. He has the power to give life. He has all of the power of the Godhead because He is God. Therefore, we see Christ is omnipotent. The third line of reasoning is to show that actions which are exclusive to God are attributed to Jesus Christ. For example, creation. John 1.3, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Jesus Christ is the Creator. The upholding and preserving of all things is ascribed to Christ. Hebrews 1.3, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Colossians 1.17, He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. Jesus Christ upholds, sustains, and maintains every created thing in the universe. Jesus Christ is also ascribed the act of pardoning sins. Luke 5.20, when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Matthew 9.6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. He forgives sins. Raising the dead, Revelation 1.8, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Who's going to raise the dead? Jesus Christ is going to raise the dead. The judgment of mankind, John 5.27, He has given Him that is the Son authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Romans 14.10, We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment of mankind is ascribed to Him. This is a big word that we typically use. The conflagration of the elements. Whatever it is that the biblical authors described of the, the melting of the heavenly bodies and the, the destruction and remaking of all created things on the last day, Jesus Christ is the one who does that. Hebrews 1, 10 to 12 says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. In other words, when the end of all things comes, Jesus Christ is the one who will be doing it. He's the one who started it, He created it, and He will roll it up. That's who we're talking about. The destruction of the wicked is ascribed to Christ. Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. When the wicked are judged, it will be Jesus Christ who does that. All of these things, which can only rightly be the duties of God, are ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The last line of reasoning that Plumer uses is to show that the worship and faith that is attributable or, or which ought to be due only to God is given to Jesus Christ. And he even makes a comment. He said that nothing is more clear in Scripture than that there is only one God and that the worship of anything else besides the one God is idolatry. The, the Scriptures are clear on that. 
And yet, to Jesus Christ, worship and faith are rendered. John 14, 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. John 3, 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Philippians 2.10, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Hebrews 1.6, And again, when He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, Let all God's angels worship Him. And therefore He says, Psalm 2.12, Kiss the Son. That's a picture of worship and adoration coming, bowing and kissing the hand or the ring of the, 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 the potentate, the king. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Again, read the scriptures. Who is our refuge? Who is our strength? It's God alone. And yet here we see, take refuge in the Son. Worship the Son. You don't want the judgment of the Son, the wrath of the Son. The names of God are given to Christ. The divine attributes are ascribed to Christ. The exclusive actions of God are ascribed to Christ. The worship and faith due to God is rendered to Christ. And as we saw at the beginning, the Scriptures directly assert that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the God of the Bible. Let me summarize. Jesus Christ is the true God, God with us, Lord of all, the Lord of glory, the King, Yahweh of hosts. As such, He is eternal. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is immutable. He is omnipotent. He is almighty. Jesus Christ is creator. He upholds, sustains, and maintains all creation. He has the authority to forgive sins, raise the dead, judge the world, melt the earthly elements, execute judgment upon the wicked, all the while demanding the worship and faith that is due to Him as God. And what does He say? Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's the same one we've been talking about the whole time. This mighty God, the Lord, invites sinners to come and to rest at His feet, to recline yourself in His strong arm. His strong arm will be used for judgment or His strong arm can be used for protection and rest and comfort to all who would come. It's good and right and proper and needful that we know the facts concerning Jesus Christ. But everything I've said about Christ, the demons also believe. The demons have never been embroiled in the, in the argument or the debate about the deity of the Son of God. They know full well who He is. They, they even said it. We know who you are. It's important that we know, that we understand, that we see the truth. It's better, it's more important to know Him, to have all of this in Him for yourself. Let's pray.